Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Will uh, with NFNLP, and we're going to record today. It's neural pathways to change a relationship with alcohol and drugs without pain, especially in the time of COVID. Uh, I know I've been kind of beating up this idea of what COVID's doing to us and, and all that, but I like it, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, because the research is, is, it's all over that like alcohol sales have went up in the 40 percentile range, especially during the lockdown. Now that things are opening up, it'll be interesting to see if it goes down. Probably not that much. Uh, overdoses are through the roof as are suicides, all the other things. They don't, you know, they don't want to talk about that. Um, and I'm always amused that during the lockdown, I don't hide my disdain for the fact you couldn't, you're, in some places, they didn't want you to go outside and run, get sunshine, or go to the gym and work out, but liquor stores were open here in the United States, Canada, uh, the UK, and Europe. So I'm like, that, that right there, let me know this. Yeah, okay, this is interesting. Why are liquor stores considered essential, right? Well, we all know if we're hypnotists, NLPers, and therapists, well, you know, you, you let people eat, you keep them a little bit inebriated in one way or shape or form. Ah, it's much easier to keep them docile. Yeah. I'm not saying that was their agenda, but, you know, to me, it kind of was. Um, so here we go. Let's get started. Again, here's my contact info. NFNLP is the easiest way to get in touch with me. Um, I'm on Twitter, Dr. Will at RealNLP, Instagram, um, and of course, Facebook. And so uh, let's have some fun. All right. So um, the truth about addictions the truth about addictions, oh, hold on. Uh, the truth is it kills much more than just the addict or the alcoholic. That's the sad part, right? Because every addict alcoholic will say, well, I'm not really hurting anybody, right? I, I'm hurting myself. No, not really. You hurt everybody around you, right? Um, and that's the truth. And, and sometimes that's not really the focus of it, right? Um, and again, addiction is like you have a scratch, an itch rather. And the addiction is the only way to solve it. I've heard that in the recovery world for 40 years. Um, and it kind of makes sense to me. Uh, and it, you know, it's like when you first, if you ever had like um, poison ivy or you get, uh, I'm allergic to mango juice when it first comes off the tree and you know the thick juice. And we got mango trees, so I'm picking them up. So if you ever had an allergy thing and you scratch it, at first it feels good and it's soothing. Then eventually, if it keeps going, you end up causing damage. And that's kind of what an addiction is. When you first start, it helps. That's it's, it's working. That's why we do it. So is it a habit or is it addiction? Dr. Wendy Wood, and she's from uh, University of Southern California, she did some research and it, it, it's a number we could use. It's just a random to me, it's almost random, but she thinks that about 45% of our actions in life are habits. They're not, we don't think about them, right? Things like driving your car, uh, how, you drive, uh, how you drive when you drive, but also which routes you take, all these things become subconscious, right? The way you do certain things. And a habit is, is, is an action that at one time you had to think about doing, but now you do without thinking. I'm trying to redevelop the habit uh, to buckle my seatbelts, 
I, 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 had, I got away from the habit of buckling my seatbelt. And uh, that can be very expensive if you get into that habit. And, you know, I, uh, so I have to make it so I'm un it's unconscious, right? Because most of your habits are either unconscious or I like the term pre-conscious. They're just there, you know, but you don't think about it. The upside is it frees up your brain to do other things. I don't have to, you don't think, when you're driving, you don't have to think about hands on wheel, how you're doing this, like you did when you first learned. The downside is it's a, Contrary to popular belief, habits are hard to break once they become into your neurology. Uh, and Dr. Graybill from MIT says uh, that the brain seems wired to seek some near optimality, right, of cost and benefit. Uh, um, and it doesn't have to be real. Intellectually, what you're doing may burn more energy than the other way. But if, if you perceive it that way to be, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be that way. Right, and she there was there's studies done all over, but the basic study is you take a rat and you teach it a routine like a, a tea maze as they call it. Right, so you the the wall goes usually you hear a buzzer, the wall goes up, and the rat uh, it's a simple tea maze like that. Right, so then they can run down and let's say they put chocolate on whichever side the, the right side. Well, the first couple of times the you hear the buzzer, the door goes up, the rat thinks, it's scratch, it's, it's sniffing, and you can see it's brainwave activity, it's thinking. But once it learns the routine, even at the beginning of the buzz and the door's going up, the rat brain spikes, it's getting ready, and then its brain slows down, right? It, it's training the neurological system. That's what Pavlov taught, you know, that's what the Pavlov dog thing is all about. It takes it outside of the thought process, it takes it out of the prefrontal cortex, puts it into the back of the brain. That's basically it in a nutshell. Because again, the first few rounds, you have to think about it. You're thinking, you're thinking, your brain's learning, it's learning, and then it'll just do it. And then once you start a routine, your brain activity actually goes down, right? When you're first learning how to drive, your brain was all busy. Hands at 10 o'clock, two o'clock, check the reel, do this, that, 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 that. Six months later, you're driving, you're eating a sandwich, you're listening to radio, you know. Uh, what I see down here is all the old people texting, which is even scarier than young people texting, right? So their brain's busy with other things, not the routine that they're doing, right? And then it's, it's basically deep in the brain, basically all that it is, right? So which is it? it a habit is a good servant, but it can be a horrible master. Because you get into a habit, it, it just stays there. You know, it's the invisible structure of your daily life, but it, you know, it becomes something, an action, a behavior, even a thought process, a belief settles in at that level when it no longer requires a decision from you, right? Because it eliminates the need for self-control, right? It's best, and if you want to make changes, you know, if you if you begin with habits that direct directly strengthen your self-control, you can build on things, you know, and, and like a lot of the research says, it's easier to build on old habits than just to create new habits, right? So there's a lot of cool stuff about habits and how they work and then what's that with an addiction, you know, but what one of my favorite subjects is, is it a routine, a ritual, or a habit, right? Um, and I'll use a couple of analogies, athletes and the military. Um, 
I think it's, uh, I've heard said, you know, shiny shoes save ships. It has to do with discipline. The army, that's a Navy thing. The army would say shiny shoes save lives. Because if you don't have discipline, when you're like back stateside and everything's safe, what are you going to do if you go outside the wire, if you're in a combat zone? You develop the discipline here, so you have it there. And so and it, it, if you do it deep enough, it becomes second nature. But there's a cool caveat with this, in my opinion. And that is, I don't know if it's this slide or the next slide. Okay. Um, if it was that easy, and, and we've always heard this thing, it takes 21 days to make a break of habit, right? 21 days to make a break of habit, right? And basically, BS on that. That is not true. That has never been really true. You can create a habit quickly, uh, or you can do something over and over and over and over and over again, and it may never really become a habit. And what do I mean by that? And again, I always think of, if you see, you know, I'll use here in the States, you see a young man or a woman, and they go in the, uh, let's say the Marines, the military. Uh, I'll use the Marines because they're an easy example. And so they're going to spend four to six years in the, in the military. And, and they're young. They're usually between the ages of 18 and 24 or five. You know, if you're enlisted, even an officer, they're you know, 22 to 26. And so they're young. That means their prefrontal cortex is still developing. But so for the next four years, let's say, they work out every day. The Marines uh, work out more than any other branch of the service. You know, my daughter tells a story. She was at a joint force training where you had Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard even, because it was some, some, some kind of training. And uh, it was on a big base. I think it was in Kentucky. And she goes, yep, you're right, Dad, because there, there you see the, um, the Army is forming up after Chow, marching to where they got to go to class, right? Um, uh, the Marines are running everywhere. They run to class. Uh, first, they do PT even before they eat child, then they go to child, then they form up, then they run to class, they do the classwork, then they run to child. You know, they run everywhere. And she goes, yeah, Dad, you, you know, the Air Force and the Navy, we're mirandering over with a cup of coffee, getting ready for class. You know, it's, it's kind of funny, right? Uh, so they develop the routine, if you will, of exercise every day. And and if you're going to stay in the core, they're pretty they're pretty strapped on how they how you got to look, you know, uh, height, weight, you got to be in shape, you got to have a presentable uniform. I mean, they do that to all of us branches of service, but especially the Marines, right? So let's say you got this guy goes in at 19 or 20, comes out at 24, so he's worked out every day. He's been on pretty much every day. He's been on duty for years, so thousands of times. And his uniform squared away. He looks good. He there or her strack, right? And then they get out and you run into them two years later. And you're like, what happened to that strapping young Marine? Right? They got the beer gut going on, or they put if the people put on some pounds, you know, they're sloppy, you know. So what happens? It should have been second nature. You know, some people come out of the military and keep that kind of lifestyle forever. Not all. Right. And it, it, to me, it has to do with that was an external discipline 
applied to them. And it had to do with the people they were hanging out with. When you're on duty, when you're on active duty in the Marines, or if you're in an Army Ranger unit or certain other units, you're held to that standard. You know, and I always say, you may not rise to the level of your dreams, you will always fall to the level of your peers. So if all the people you're hanging out with are high performers, you're gonna, it's gonna force you to try to pull yourself up, right? And everyone usually makes the mistake of thinking, I'll get all my friends to change, or I'll get all my associates to change. Oh, contraire, right? It's the, it's the crabs in a bucket syndrome. You jump in the bucket, you're gonna be stuck there because they're gonna pull you down. Yeah, we'll, after work, we'll go work out. Yeah, we're gonna go you know, pump some iron, do some runs, and then work, work ends. They're like, hey, let's go get some pizza and beers. You know, yeah, it sounds a lot easier than like, you know, doing a 30 pound, uh, uh, putting on a weight vest and running 20, 20 miles, whatever you're going to do. No. So it's an external form, right? So what's the difference? Why do some people, they make some changes and it becomes permanent, right? And other people don't. I think it has to do with almost, even if you're going to take a habit to that level, it's almost like an addiction becomes a self-generating reward system, right? Uh, and some of it has to do with the peers that you're hanging out with and the people you're doing, okay? So to me, it's a fascinating subject, you know? It's like, what's the difference? Because you can do something over and over and over again. Um, you know, and if you're gonna run a clinic, a hypnosis clinic or any kind of change clinic, and people come in for weight loss, which is big money, uh, this'll be something that comes up. Right. And how many times we see people work out over and over, you know, they'll get to their goal and then they quit. Right. They get to their goal and then they quit. You know, one of my friends who does a lot of weight, used to do a lot of weight loss, uh, would say in a weird way, he had a love hate relationship with brides. Because he'd get the call, I'm getting married in six months. Can you help me lose weight? Great. Because they come in, they get a lot of money, they'll spend the money. That's fine. And he goes, part of, the, part of him's going, and he started telling him that. He goes, well, I really want to work with you, but let me ask you a question. We'll get you to your size eight, right? If that's reasonable, let's be honest. But we'll get you there. You're going to look great. But my question is, dear lady, is that your wedding reception? When you have your piece of cake, do you plan on never stopping again? Because now you're married, you made the pictures, you look great. Now you're going to gain 45, 50 pounds after you get married. And, and he goes, a lot of them would look at him. He goes, because I see that. He goes, that's fine. That's your choice. I'm just telling you up front. We'll get you to your goal. But if you don't keep doing the things we're telling you to do and getting you to do, if that ends on the altar, don't come back and say, well, hypnosis really didn't work. Does that make sense to everybody? Right? So it's like he kind of was, he was hardening them. They're like, you know, he would still take their money and work with them because that, that was fine. But, you know, we see that over and over and over again, right? Cool. And here's just my, I like this. Carl, you're going to get out there today and you're going to catch that red dot. Today's the day, right? If it was a dog, today's the day you're going to catch your tail, right? And it, and it's a weird thing to put up there, but it's how their brain is wired, right? They will just keep chasing it. They're, after a while, they're smart enough. They're not going to catch that red dot, right? Um, but their brain's wired that way. And that's how our, our brains aren't wired all that much different, right? That's what, you know, we need to.
think about, right? And plus, I just like to smile, all right? An addiction cycle is one level above a habit, right? It's, a, it's like, like I said, you have an itch. It's a need, right? And the addiction, alcohol, drugs, sex, smoking, food, whatever your addiction is, maybe more than one, it's a way to release. It's a way to soothe the itch. And a lot of times they start as socially acceptable things, right? In fact, in our culture, I still argue that if you don't drink, it's considered weird. You know, somebody says that's starting to change. You go, I don't think so. You know, uh, and it's the only thing if you people will think they have the reason to ask you why you don't want to have a drink. General thing is, hey, well, would you like a drink? No, that's okay. Well, we have beer, we have wine. No, I'm fine. Well, we have this, we have, they'll go down this whole damn list, right? Rather than just like, I don't want to drink. You know, the soda's fine or my water's fine, right? Because that's socially acceptable. Right? And it has to do with how our brains are wired. Again, everything goes back to wiring. Um, that's why it's easier if that ever happens, if you're working with addicts or alcoholics, if they have like a water bottle or soda with them, it's easier for them to say, no, I'm fine. Right? Because in, their, in the host's mind, when they see you and your hands are empty, you're not part of our, our tribe. Right. And for most of millennia, we starved to death. Right. And things were rare. And food, uh, sometimes even water. I mean, you know, there's all this stuff, you know, wine, mead, whatever it was. And so if somebody offers you food, people are trying to lose weight. That's always a problem. Oh, we're having the Christmas party. Look, I made all these sweets. Do you want it? No, I'm fine. Are you sure? I made this. I made that. I made this. Right. Well, they're part of that is in their brain because they're trying to create a community, right? And so if you say no, it's almost like you're stepping out of the tribe or the group or the, or the family, right? And it's so, and a lot of our addictions at some level are socially acceptable. Depending on your age, uh, and now we're aging out because it's, it, we're, it's just we're aging out, but for you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s, um, even going into the 80s, alcoholism was encouraged over, you know, like smoking a joint. You know, your kid's, your kid's drinking a lot of beer. Yeah, but he doesn't smoke dope, right? So it was like, because alcohol's been around for forever. And that, now that's starting to change, but some of them are socially acceptable. And the really interesting thing about why addiction can get so deep, it's the law of intermittent reward. Um, you're, you're searching for that soothing. You know, I, I, I'm in distress. We'll get to that when we do the trauma, whatever it is. So I'm in distress. I need to be calmed down. I need to feel better, right? And if I have a couple of beers, I feel better. And the intermittent reward is this time I have a couple of beers and I do feel better. And the shit doesn't hit the fan, excuse the language, but it's like, I'm fine. I actually have some fun, right? Uh, but then the next time I have that feeling, I have a couple of beers that starts the cycle, then I have six beers, then eight beers, then the next thing you know, whatever, depending on what the addictions are, you're off to the races. So it's why, you know, gambling is so addictive. 
Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, right? You know, here in the States, have you ever been at a, at a, at a gas station trying to pay for your gas and there's somebody up there going, give me $5 of gas, which is what, maybe a gallon and a half, depending on where you're at, and $20 in scratch-offs, right? And they're driving a 30-year-old beat-up car and everything, you're like, okay, that's interesting. But then they'll, you know, but last week I won 30 bucks. Well, you're spending 20 bucks almost every day. Okay, last week you won 30 bucks. But at that moment, they had that inter intermittent reward. So it's, they got that dopamine rush. And so that, that's addictive, big time, right? And they always say that the worst thing ever happened the first time you buy a lotto ticket or a scratch off is you win. Right, and then you're know, like, it'll start a cycle. But I always stress that your your brain's main job is to keep you alive and to search for threats. This is a friend of mine had this uh, picture, and I love it. Right, it's always on edge. Right, because human beings are not very good. We're not the fastest creatures. We're definitely not the strongest. Um, we're not good fighters. We're not prepared. We don't have nails. Da 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 da. So it, we're always on edge to try to stay alive, right? And our basic strength is we can think and we form groups. We're the ultimate pack animal, you know? Alone, a, a human could not take down a buffalo. You know, uh, uh, the tribe, no problem. We develop rituals, we develop whatever it happens to be. So your brain is wired to look for threats. It's constantly searching for threats. It's why there's a, a, a sudden loud no, noise, an explosion, a crack of thunder. You know, it's like, boom, it'll, it'll light up your brain, right? Because it's always searching for threat. That's called our reticular activating system, right? That's its first job. Well, now we're not under constant threat. There's not lions, tigers, and bears trying to kill us. And unless you're in a combat zone, you're not in an active shooting environment. You don't have to worry about that. We have food because the next level down for your brain is searching for food. And then underneath that would be searching for mates, right? Because it's just, this is how your brain's wired. We can act like it's not, but it's like this, right? And so all those things aren't, with, aren't, aren't on the forefront like they used to be. So our brains is, have adapted it's why we can retrain our reticular activating system. So, and I always use the old analogy, if you've ever wanted a certain car or you're thinking about buying a car and you go, I want a BMW three series, suddenly you'll see that car everywhere you look. The day before you wouldn't notice it, right? If you like, whatever it is, if, you, if something's important to you, your brain will find it, right? Whatever kind of person you find attractive, if you walked into a room of 100 people, you will notice the people you find attractive first, right? Just the way your brain's wired, right? Um, and so, and it's also why uh, the, the gratitude experiment works so well. If you, if you think about gratitude, it starts rewiring your, your brain to actually look for other things to be grateful about. Um, and it's just the way it is, right? And so this is, this is just how our brains work, right? And then with an addiction, 
uh, our endorphins kick in. It, it's a jolt, you know, and when it first hits, it bypasses physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual pain. And when the endorphins kick in, you begin to feel invincible, right? And then when it comes to an addiction, when they wear off, you feel guilty, remorse, and eventually shame, right? And so that starts that cycle. And then the only way you know to feel better is whatever gives you that addictive, that endorphin rush, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it is, food, whatever it is. And, now, and so it starts that cycle again and again and again. And it actually gets down into your nervous system. It's not a conscious, subconscious conflict. It gets into your nervous system. And we need to retrain our nervous system, right? And, and of course, that when you add stress of any kind, the cycle repeats. But then what begins to happen with an addiction, you need more of whatever it is, alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, food, to get the same results. Now here's my overview of addiction in general, especially alcohol and drugs. That's just kind of a background. Uh, we can talk more about it. If you want info on it, email me. I got a whole thing on habits, how habits form and habits work. And if, if I remember right, I know somebody wrote a book on habits. Oh yeah, uh, you know, and uh, the book is available, Habits for Success, and it breaks it down even more. But for addiction, we go through this level, these levels. And I'm mainly gonna talk about alcohol, but now it would also work for like dope, marijuana, because it's legal just about everywhere. Um, so what happens, and outside of a very small, uh, uh, statistical number, you're not born addicted, right? Um, so we're, you're basically tabula rusa as a small child, right? And even as you're grown. And it's not that it's not around you. You see people drinking or smoking a joint. You're just do, 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 right? It, it's, it's, you're abstinent because it's just not in your world, right? Then what begins to happen the, fir the, the first level that is you never use it, you have no experience with it. And then what happens, you begin to experiment, especially in our culture, the Western world, alcohol and drugs, right? Primarily, still alcohol is the number one, right? And marijuana is rapidly moving up there, but mainly it, it's alcohol, right? And we experiment with it. Contrary to what a lot of parents will say about their kid never will, chances are they will between the ages of, depending on the culture and things, between 12-ish, 13-ish, to you know, 18 or 19, 20, they're gonna experiment, right? Now, a lot of people will experiment, they'll have a few drinks and they won't like it. They don't like the way it makes them feel, they may not like the taste, and guess what? They go back to being abstinent. I don't wanna do this, I don't like the way it makes me feel. And they're done, right? It's maybe they had a bad first experience, but they don't like it, so they're done. They don't experiment with it anymore, right? But for most people, because it's a so we're social creatures, as part of the social environment, they begin to socially use, and it's no big deal, right? They can drink, not drink, smoke a joint, not smoke a joint, they're fine, right? They take 
pharmaceuticals, if they're prescribed, they take them the way they are prescribed, right? So it's social use, right? Does not mean they might not get drunk, go to a wedding, have too much to drink, things like that, right? And uh, one of the mistakes people make is, oh, someone got a DUI, they have to be an alcoholic. Eh, not, ne not necessarily, you know? They were at a wedding reception, they, especially with the, some states down to 0 0.06 or 0 0.08, that's not much liquor in your system, right? Uh, but they socially use. And also with social use, there'll be periods where you don't drink or don't use it. It's like, nope, not around, no big deal. In fact, truly, you may not be able to remember the last time you used because it's not in your awareness, right? But then abuse drinking, is the next level your substance abuse is what they would call it and it like maybe it's a reaction to something so you're a social user and then you know um something bad you know you lose a loved one you lose a job bad stuff's going on you start drinking too much to self-medicate right um that's what we're seeing now with the, the COVID lockdown. People are under stress, jobs change, this change, you know, and you actually had to be with your spouse a, a lot. For a lot of people, that was not very comfortable, let's be honest, right? And so it's like, though so they're drinking or smoking a joint to self-medicate, right? Uh, so it could be something like that. Could be something even more positive. Kid goes away to college, doesn't, you know, a social drinker in high school and that gets into a fraternity or a sorority, she gets into a sorority and drinks, Parties like a maniac for the next few years. And it's, a, and it's a problem. It's an abuse issue. And the key word with abuse is there's negative consequences. You know, your boss is yelling at you. You're, you get the letter from the dean. Hey, you know, you're, you're not doing as well in school. Your parents are yelling at you, right? Or you get a DUI, right? Okay, oh, my God, I got in trouble with the courts, right? Um, And that is substance uh, abuse. But what begins to happen for a lot of people that have this abuse problem, they will just stop. Right? They'll get out of they'll, they get out of college. They graduate college now. For last couple of years of college, they were the frat boy from hell, always drunk, partying, barely got out of college. They get out of college. They go home. They get they get a job. They get married. They have a kid. They don't. They go back to social drinking. It's no big deal to them, right? It's, they're fine, you know? Or you, you work through the financial issues, uh, you get over your grief cycle, whatever it is, you kind of just naturally work your way out of the abuse cycle. You know, you get that DUI and you say, I'm done. I'm never doing this again, right? And that'll be the person that, you know, they'll be out at a party and maybe have part of the drink. Somebody, oh, you want another one? No, I'm driving and you couldn't get them to have the second, right? So that's just, so it could be good thing, could be bad thing. Somebody goes to the military and God knows a lot of the branches of the military um, drink a little bit when they're, you know, when they hit, when they have shore duty, uh, you know, get a liberty in the Navy or the Marines or, or get leave in the Army, Air Force, and they party, right? And it's a young group, so everybody's doing it. Uh, their body can handle it. So they, they, but then they get out and they just stop again, right? Um, and then for many people, they'll, they'll abuse them. Like 
especially alcohol, we see it. And then they hit a point in their mid thirties, they just start cycling back because their body can't handle it anymore. You know, used to be they could stay out, have several beers, you know, drink, you know, get pretty, maybe not rip and drunk, but be pretty buzzed, you know, come in at midnight, crash, be up at six to go to work. There'll come a point where suddenly the body goes, eh, you're not doing this shit anymore, right? Right? Uh, some of us hit the point where uh, even without it, if I, you know, if you, if you skip, if you skip sleep, you're like going, your body doesn't bounce back. You know, somebody asked me the other day, since we're talking to hypnotists, uh, uh, why I quit doing stage hypnosis. All right. I like stage hypnosis. I think it's, I'm a performer at heart. You guys know that I'm an actor. I've done comedy. I mean, I like it. I like, I'm MC, right? Stage. I always tell people, if you really want to be a performer, a really performer and be the center of attention and you can't sing, dac dance, act, do magic or tell jokes, learn stage hypnosis, All right? That's kind of a cold statement, but it's, you know, it's like, I liked it. Why did I quit doing it? And, and if you learn how to do it and you can, and you, and you learn how to book a few shows, you can, it's, it can be quite profitable, right? Why did I quit doing it? The idea of doing, a sh especially like the after proms, and the lockdown, the high school things that we do here in the States. Um, unless you've never done it, you don't know what it's like to do like a, a 1 a.m. show and a 4 a.m. show, right? And I'm the type, I can't sleep before. And then once the shows are over, I'm jazzed. You're kind of jazzed because you've just done a performance or two. So you're like, yeah, this is great. And now it's like, you know, you, you haven't slept. Uh, I don't come back like I used to. When I started doing those, when I was in my 40s, eh, no big deal. I'd be a little tired the next day. I was fine, you know? And then I came home from one. I'm like, I'm not doing that shit again. That's just, that's it, right? Heck, I've worked on a couple of movies where we shot at night, all night. And I was I'm like, I ain't doing this if I, unless I have to. I just, I don't like it, right? So that's some of the, and so people will just age out. Right. So is it is it an addiction and then the addiction level? So you're abusing substances like you're in a frat, you're partying all the time and then you get out of college and you're still partying all the time. You're still the frat boy wherever you go. You're the party guy. You're the party girl. Da, 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 da. You know, that's the guy that's still, you know, couch surfing in his late 30s. Right. There's negative consequences everywhere, but they keep doing. It, right. Uh, and for that person that crosses into the addiction phase, in my opinion, they can never ever socially use again. That's off the table. The, in fact, it's coming back for full circle. The 12 step world, the Alcoholics Anonymous have said for 75 years, alcoholism is a, is a allergy to alcohol that manifests itself as a desire to drink. And then Narcotics Anonymous took the same with drugs which makes sense to me. It's an allergy. And once you have it, it doesn't go away, right? Uh, my wife's allergic to shellfish, right? She's probably gonna stay allergic to shellfish, right? Um, that's, that's, the, that's the genetic component. Of it. And once you get to that level, there's only two things you could do. You could drink or you could stay sober. There's no in between, right? 
And so that is the level of, 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 of true deep addiction. Now we get people calling us all the time. We don't know where they are. Are they in this, are they just drinking a little too much? Right? Maybe because of stress, because of whatever it is, right? Hanging out. And again, this is part about who, who you hang out with, right? A lot of those guys in the frat or in the military, they get away from that group. If they go back to a group that doesn't do that, they're not gonna, they're not gonna do it. That makes sense, everybody, right? It does to me. And that's one of my, and I do not hide my disgust, my disdain to my core when I hear a hypnotist or an EFT or even a psychotherapist say, well, if we do this, this, and this, you could still go to the bar every day and not drink. Right? Well, what are you gonna tell a heroin addict he can hang out at the dope house? I mean, Jesus, I just, you know, I had a big argument with a with a hypnotist at this at a conference. It was great. Uh, because my only question was, what's your longitudinal study that you have this success? And you know what it was based on? One client. I said, when was the last time you talked to him? Three years ago. So you have no idea. Right? Because you think an alcoholic might lie. If you call them up, oh yeah, I'm still sober. I'm still I'm sober. No, it's Jesus Christ. I just, I'm sorry. I don't hide my disdain, right, for that. Um, cool. So, so we have these levels, and most people are bouncing around. They may drink a little too much. Then they'll go back and socially use, and something will happen. They'll drink a little bit too much. Maybe on vacation, go on a cruise. You ever heard people go, oh, I drank too much on that cruise. Or if there's a food thing, they'll say they did it on, you know, on, on the cruise, right? Uh, one of my friends, he recently passed away, but they, they, they like cruises. Yes, yeah, but you know, the bad part is everybody knows you got to gain 20 pounds on a cruise. I'm like, why? You know, that's always my question. Sound like Scott McFarland. Why? Well, there's the morning book, you know, there's like the morning thing, then you have like a brunch, then there's lunch, then there's the after lunch, then there's dinner, and then there's the late dinner. You know, yeah, they also have like excursions, they have health clubs, they have a swimming pool, you could go dancing. And I looked at the, this is the client, I go, you could get off your fat ass and do one of those other things, or you can just sit at the trough. <laughs> you know, and yes, I talk to clients that way. Um, so anyway, but the, so these are the levels and some of that, okay. And most people may not need help. You know, they'll just cycle back on their own. We get the people that need some help. They call and say, hey, I drink a little bit too much, maybe this. So the first thing we have to do is figure out, are they just abusing a little bit too much or are they moved into the addiction phase, right? And part of that has to do with getting away from the, from the behavior long enough to figure it out. And this kind of comes with, the happy rat study, one of my favorite studies, uh, the happy rat, uh, which is back in the 60s, they, you know, psychologists are good at two things, torturing um, graduate students and, and rats. That's basically what they do, what we do. And so they took a bunch of rats, they took some rats and got them hooked on, I think heroin was first. And then they hooked them, I know on alcohol, a couple other things, right? And so this rat's hooked, and it will keep using till it damn near dies, right? And so then what they would do is they would throw in like really good food, what a rat would normally like. That rat would ignore it, male or female, but 
and, and keep using. Um, they, if it was a male, they would throw in a female in heat, which should get the male rat's attention. Nope, the rat would keep using, right? Basically the rat would keep using until it died. And that started the whole zero tolerance war on drugs mindset. Drugs bad. Certain things are so, and they, and it was the drug, not the behavior, right? So it was like this, this, so that started all this other stuff, right? Um, and then some, some, so some scientists looked at that study later on and went, "There's a, there's a glitch in the study, right? Which is that's not how rats operate. That's not in their usual system. Rats, much like human beings, are social creatures, right?" If you've ever had a rat infestation, you know what I'm talking about, right? I live in Florida. If you have fruit trees, you will eventually get fruit rats, right? They're just, they show up, right? And all they are are, you know, rats are, 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 are like squirrels with a skinny tail, right? People think squirrels are cute, but they're just like rats, right? Anyway, so we know that, right? They like groups. So they duplicated the study, got the rats hooked. That's not that hard. Right, so they were hooked, and then they took the rat out of the unhappy rat cage, which was pretty sparse. And rather than put, you know, put in females or food or things, they took the rat out of that and put it in what we, what I would call a happy rat cage. There were, it was a group, not just one, like, but there were females, there were baby rats, there's all the things rats like, stuff to make them think, good food, all this other stuff. All the rats quit using. They could, they still had like the, whatever it was, green water bottle with the drug in it. The rat knew that, but it would go, it would not do it, right? It would be a little lethargic, but it didn't go through full-blown withdrawals like people were expecting. You know, even like drugs like heroin, morphine, the rat just kind of worked through it. And once it was in the happy rat cage, it was fine. And this coincided with, with the, a little social, uh, experiment America did called Vietnam, right? Uh, where we decided to take democracy to places whether they wanted it or not was irrelevant. We were gonna bring you the American dream. And so they put all these soldiers in Vietnam, right? At, at the highest point at any given time, we had 500,000 soldiers. Um, I think from about 66 or seven through 71, there's about 500,000 troops in South uh, Vietnam and drugs and alcohol were rampant because A, it was an unpopular war. It was an unhappy rat cage. There was, you know, one like World War II where the Nazis were bad, this, 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 this was like, yeah, the Viet Cong, but it was like, it wasn't popular either. People at home were like, you know, burning the flags, call me baby killer, all this stuff. So it was an unhappy place. Most of the people there, most didn't want to be there. We had the draft. Guys were drafted. They were shipped to Vietnam, right? And they were young. You know, they had, uh, the typical story is, you know, nine months before that, they may, they may have been at their senior prom, right? And going into their 19th or 20th birthdays, they're slogging through the rice paddies of South, South Vietnam, right? And no, right? So, so alcohol was rampant. The military brought in lots of alcohol. Uh, of course, it was South Vietnam, which is part of the, the triangle where there was hashish and heroin, really good drugs, man, really good drugs. So people were self-medicating. 
right? And so what begins what 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 happened was they were gearing up for this huge problem, this huge problem when these troops came back from 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 the war that were addicted to alcohol and drugs. What are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with them? Right? So they geared up for this huge problem. Oh, and by the way, and aside, uh, we've trained them in how to be soldiers. Right? You know, what's the difference between a military policeman and a regular policeman? Right? A military policeman, every person they talk to on base at one time or another learned how to use lethal force. Right? So you're bringing back all these guys, and some of them just seen horrific shit and they're addicted. What are we going to do with them? So they geared up for it. And what happened? Nothing. Not what they expected. Most, most of the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marine coming back blended back into society. What it was, they got out of the unhappy rat cage and they were put back into a happy rat cage. They were back home. They got the job. They had their car. They had a girlfriend. Um, they went back to work. They went back to the world. Now, there was an adjustment period and they had some stressors to burn off, but it was like if they went back to a place they liked, it was fine. Uh, a small, a smaller percentage, like somewhere six to ten percent, had some issues when they came back with the with with the addiction. And it didn't matter if it was heroin, hashish, marijuana, or or alcohol. You know, the numbers were about the same. Um, but uh, so the ones that had the most issue on a you know on a unofficial you know research of it were the people going back to situations that weren't very happy in the first place right they were going back to a life they didn't want maybe it was the inner city maybe it was the farms but the ones that wanted to go back and be a farmer they were happy right ones that wanted to go back and work in the steel plant or the auto factory they were happy but the ones that didn't now you're putting them back in an unhappy rat cage right and so they learned to self-medicate in one place, Southeast Asia, and now they brought that home, right? So it really wasn't the alcohol, the drugs, or this. It was, and plus, then they would choose to hang out with people that used addictively. The people that came back and blended back into society, they were hanging out with people that didn't. Same with the frat guys that get out and, you know, if they go to work and they're not hanging out with the partiers, they don't party, right? Um, it's kind of interesting stuff, right? So there's a connection with trauma. You know, is, is addiction a disease of connection, right? And what about what they call epigenetics? What if you're genetically prone to an addiction? And what the epigenetics would say, unless you light it up and you start using it, you could be genetically prone to diabetes, but if you eat a healthy diet, you're much less likely for that genetic predisposition to light up. But now there's a lot of thought that trauma is one of the keys, right? Because one of the things trauma does is it stops the connection with two things. It stops the connection with others, your group, your tribe, your family, and it stops the connection with yourself. And it activates the genetic code for addiction if you already have it. And you learn that the best way to soothe whatever trauma it was 
um, was with the, with the self-medicating from the alcohol or drugs. Okay, cool. All right. We're going to take a quick pause. All right, part two, it, the connection to trauma and addiction. And we talk about, is it a disease of connection or is it just um, genetics or epigenetics, right? Maybe it's a little bit of both, but I think trauma is an underlying driver. Now, when you look at trauma, the first model you look at is the medical model, any kind of trauma. But the classic medical model separates mind and body, right? They don't even, it's almost like the body's a machine. It's a thing, you know, as a friend of mine says, you know, it's a machine that's built to carry around your head, right? That the mind is separate. And it really doesn't, there's no real mind-body connection. And if you fix the machine with surgery or drugs, the mind has to follow, not the other way around. And in the true medical model, logic logic is paramount, right? And even within the medical model, it's, they don't look at things as deeply like your social connections, right? And how important all these other things could be, you know, not just fix the, the, the physical issue with surgery or the pharmaceuticals, whatever they're doing. Uh, what about the other things, right? And did we not see it in the COVID lockdown where you know, they, they shut down like elderly people in nursing homes seeing their family. Well, you're keeping them alive. Are you? You know, and I, I, I don't hide my disdain where it showed pictures of people like reaching up and touching a pane of glass and there's the grandmother touching the pane of glass. And isn't that sweet? No, that's cruel, right? That's my opinion. But that's separating the two. It's like, oh, you know, the state of mind has nothing to do with the body. But maybe it has more to do with it than they think. So that's the classic medical model, right? And, and trauma will fix the physical trauma. And I do give certain, like, you know, like we got great surgeons. I mean, look at what they're doing with veterans coming, you know, the, um, the chances of dying on the battlefield are lower than ever because of the great medical care they get on the scene and how quickly it is and things they televac people out or medevac people out and then boom, you know, so they can fix the machine. But what about the mind? What about the mind? And then with that also, what about the social connection? So, and the hypnosis or in the psych model, the psychology model is we have a conscious and subconscious mind, right? Yes, that's true, but it's a limited view. The more we're learning about how things actually work, it does not explain deep treatment resistant trauma or deep treatment resistant addiction. And to me, those two begin to lock together. Why do some people go to a treatment center, like whatever, 28 day, whatever they happen to do, go to therapy, start going AA, whatever, and they're good to go. They quit, they're on their way. And other people, they go through treatment, they can't sober up or get off the drugs. They go to therapy, they go to AA, and they're, they're in a different cycle, right? Maybe the people that can take it quickly um, don't, don't have the same level of psychological trauma, right, or physical trauma. Always remembering all trauma is personal. 
one of the mistakes a lot of us make is, you know, because when we think about like post-traumatic stress disorder, it's combat veterans, it's going through a car wreck, it's living through a, a, a hurricane or a volcano. That's one level of trauma. So is not being heard as a, as a small child. And, and the more we know, it's, it's some of the smaller traumas that build on each other that take off. So, so and, and in this model of this trauma model is you have three minds, right? The classic mind brain is good, right? But the mind is in the body and the body is in the mind. They're, they're interconnected. It has to do with through evolution. And that it's called the tricameo mind. So some people don't really believe in it like they did, but for what we're talking about, it works. The addiction model and the trauma model. Your deepest mind is the reptilian brain, which is the freeze response, right? Um, when you scare a snake or a lizard, they freeze, right? Then they might jump away, but their first response is freeze, right? Uh, and it's basically in their evolutionary mind. It's how it was, it's what keep them alive, right? The next mind to begin to develop is the mammalian mind, uh, which is fight or flee. There's a response. They're either gonna try to fight it if there's a threat or they're gonna flee. Okay, great. And now we have the highest mind, the social mind, it's the higher primate or the social mind, where you can look for the solution and you can also look for other people to help you with it, right? So we're always bouncing between these three levels of the mind. The reptilian mind, main jobs keep you alive. Your heart beating, your blood flowing, your food digesting, things like that. You don't have to really think about it, right? The mammalian mind, the reptilian mind's running like an auto program. The mammalian mind's on top of it. And then in the primate mind's on top of that. It's one way to look at it. Yes, if you really try, you can control your heart rate, your breathing, even your blood pressure. It, yeah, we, we know people that can do it, but it's not as easy as they think. Now, our, our primate brain, our social brain, um, is new. It's the newest part of our brain. It's about 200 million years old, which in evolutionary terms is nothing, right? But it's part of our social brain as we <clears throat> began to develop. It's why we read faces, why we read posture, and that's to figure out is someone a friend or are they a foe, number one, right? And the whole thing is, is can I feel safe, right? And that's what we're going for. Can I feel safe? It's not about friendship. It's not about anything but feeling safe. And that's your, your reticular activating system. It's why we, now we know it as rapport, right? But it's, it's about social engagement with other people, right? And when you remove that, you know, most people, the, uh, a lot of uh, people that study torture always say one of the worst tortures is um, isolation. It's, it's inhumane, right? Because we're not built that way, right? And it's called the ventral vagal part of our brain. You know, it's the ventral vagal nerve. And it, it's where we feel present with ourselves, present with other people. You can't feel really pleasant, ple present, excuse me, with other people when you're in a threat mode. If you feel threatened, you don't connect with people. Family doesn't matter. You're, you're like, Ugh, right? Uh, 
And it's when you feel safe, secure, and generally pretty good. It's a happy place when you're there. But then if you move out and you feel some even a light bit of threat, which could manifest as stress, there's some threat going on. People talk about stress as something different. Stress is nothing but like a trauma response. It's like, you know, my, and uh, 12-step world talks about it. Something's being threatened. Maybe it's my finances. There's trouble at work or, or with, the, with, with that or my relationships. So my, you know, those are being threatened, you know, or uh, my food. There's no food. I mean, these, these different things. When you're in those modes, you can't connect with other people. And so the mammalian brain, it's called sympathetic activation, right? And it's a mobilization to react quickly. It's always running, right? And it's, it's needed for any kind of action. When you're feeling totally lethargic, your brain is pretty much shut down, right? A little bit of fight or flight is what gets you to take action, right? Because we all need some motivation sometimes to do anything, right? And sometimes if you think about what I, if I don't do this, I'm gonna get in trouble. My boss is gonna yell at me if I don't finish this report. And it's the external feeling of tension or threat that will get you to take action to do some things, right? So this is the mammalian brain, right? And it's, it's 400 million years old. But if, if it's activated all the time, excuse me, there's a lot of muscle tension. You can't relax, right? One of the things I read about where they were saying way to test it is if you take like a, you got a massage or you went through a yoga session and you're feeling really good and you're relaxed and you're, you're limber. That's what happens when you stretch. Within a few minutes, your body tightens right back up, right? Um, and there's a lot more physical pain, right? And addiction is sometimes an escape from the physical pain or the psychological pain. Either one is pain. Right. And so again, it doesn't have to be real. It could be vividly imagined, as we all know. The deepest part of your brain, the dorsal branch of your vagus nerve, everything has to do with the vagus nerve, is your reptilian brain. It's, it's the oldest part of your brain. It's 500 million years old. Right. Uh, it's the place of when it's totally activated, it's immobile. You, you're, you can't move. You're, that's what shock is. Right. That's why you see like first responders, police, firemen. Um, sometimes it seems mad. They'll be shaking somebody or screaming to get them to move because the person is frozen. That's where frozen in fear is, frozen in terror, right? And if you've ever went through an experience and you froze up and then later on you look back and want to beat yourself up because why did I freeze? It wasn't your conscious mind. It was, you had no other option at that moment except to freeze. Right. And unless you got the kind of training to face that fear, whether it's combat or that, or if it's a one off like a car wreck, or if you were attacked, which hopefully won't ever happen again. Right. It's, it's just what's going to happen. Uh, and, and if it's just slightly activated, there's feelings of lethargy, despondency, no motivation, no motivation, hopelessness. You don't feel capable. You don't have any feeling of control. And this is where the addiction is in really stored in your brain, right? And as we're coming out of COVID, the reason I wanted to add this in with the addiction in COVID, how many people are feeling that as it's opening up, right? 
they still, they can't get motivated. I'm, getting, I'm talking to all kinds of people and they're saying, yeah, it's like, I thought I'd be more motivated when things opened up. It's like, eh, yeah, right? It's like, they, because for a year, a lot of people were put in, learned hopelessness or helplessness. And now it's like, well, and also too, if you have a, if your rat cage wasn't what you really wanted when this happened, are you that much happy to go back to it? You know, here in the States, in Canada, I saw, uh, the big fight now is like, because people don't want to go back to work. Are people, are people inherently lazy? Well, we could, that's a whole different discussion, but maybe they don't want to go back to a work they hated, right? Right, and, and that's part of it. You know, it's not that they don't want to go back to work. They don't want to go back to work for you or that job, right? Here in Florida, where I'm at right now, there's a lot of problems because restaurants can't hire people. And a lot of the same restaurants that are complaining laid everybody off right instantly, of course, at the beginning of the lockdown, okay? No, it's not their, it's, it's our culture, right? Now, you got to come back to work. I don't want to come back to work, right? And people still aren't eating out. When they interviewed some waitress and she's like, before this happened, she'd make, you know, even off season here in Florida, she'd make over $100 a night in tips. She went back, worked on a Friday night, which is usually busy. She made like $30. She's like, I'm not staying. And then some of the restaurants are starting to tell waiters here in Florida, waiters and waitresses, oh, well, since it's slow, you can bust tables. You can, you can help wash dishes in the back, right? So, and the same, you know, it's like, because there was one little article the person checked, it's like, this guy was screaming, nobody wants to go back to work. And when you saw what you expect them to do, you know, because don't forget here in Florida, waitress and waitresses make $2.60 an hour, right? Because everything else is, your tips should overcome that. So it's like, hmm, right? So it's that feeling, it's hopeless, it's this and that. So addiction stays in this part of your brain. Um, and so when you're in this, you, you, you always have going on sympathetic activation versus shutdown. Are you in stress mode? Or are you in rebuild mode? Are you in stress mode? Or are you in rebuild mode? But what's beginning to happen is our modern life is so stressful. It's unrelenting. You know, and it never stops. We have the cell phone, right? 20, beep, beep, 24 seven, this and that, you know, and especially in the Western world or, uh, here in America, even more than Europe, uh, you know, it's like um, we brag about how much we work. You can reach me 24 seven. You know, I was at a conference and somebody said, do you tell your clients they can reach you 24 seven? Hell no, they can't reach me 24 seven. I'm not, you know, no. That's, no, <laughs> you know, maybe when I first started, you kind of went, oh, no, you know, um, because the modern stress is unrelenting, right? And it never stops, decades even. And another thing, a, a guy wrote a little article that was saying that this last year was the first time many people were forced to slow down. They don't want to go back. And another big fight has to do with this sympathetic activation and everything. It's like, and let's say they work from home for the last year. Now they're saying, well, you got to come back to the office, get back in your cubicle. Okay. And that's also an hour commute each way. Uh, 
you know, I got to bring lunch or buy lunch. No, because they had the chance to, sh to slow down, right? So there's a lot of things going on, right? And really what begins to happen, there's no way out. We are relationship creatures, right? But we're under stress. It's impossible to cultivate strong connections with other people, right? But our physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health depend on us connecting with other people, right? Uh, and whether you connect with a, like it's your family, maybe it's your church group, maybe it's your friends at the gym, maybe it's your friends at, a, at an AA meeting. And what they did in the COVID thing, and then they wonder why is it, why is addiction up? They took away your church, they took away your gym, they took away, even if you'd like to go out and eat and communicate with other human beings. Oh, and by the way, we shut down all the AA meetings, NA meetings, recovery meetings, but you should be fine, right? Even couldn't go see your therapist in person, it had to be online, right? So you need this, this healing, this connection, right? But what's happening now, and the reason I think we're seeing, we're only beginning to see this curve go up is how many people have been trained to be fearful of other human beings. Now they're remembering some people, even though they're telling you, you don't have to wear a mask, you have to do this. I'm gonna wear a mask forever now when I'm in public. Okay, I mean, it's like, you know, and I'm never gonna shake hands and hug, right? Uh, no, that's humans crave contact. So things that should be pleasurable, hugging, which could lead to intimacy of any kind, closeness becomes a source of threat. So in one way, we've had a year of being in a narcissistic relationship with the powers that be, we've been abused. Right. And all we're seeing is the trauma response coming back and addiction. Right. How many people gained a lot of weight in COVID? Because they were maybe they, thank God they didn't drink or use drugs, but they were overeating. Right. Uh, so the, the, it, it's just now coming up. And really what happens when it comes to trauma, words don't work. It's not about changing your beliefs or thoughts. If it's a deep trauma. Because if it's down into that parts of your brain that are 500 million years old, language does not exist. And the, that's why like traditional post-traumatic stress is you, de, you debrief, you keep saying what the stressor was over and over again with the thought that should relieve it. When the actual research says, no, it makes it worse, right? Because these kind of things, their feelings, their sense, there's a pressure. It's a nervous block. It's like a clogged drain. And this is why a lot of therapy, hypnosis and NLP included, has a short-term effect because it's like you opened up the drain a tiny bit, so some of the stuff's dribbling through, and then but then it comes, it reclogs, and bam, it's back. And that's why sometimes people go around there doesn't seem to be anything in their life they should be stressed about, but they feel stressed, right? And then what's really happening is. You know, your body is not a thing and you have to unwind the stored trauma in your body, right? Because your body's constantly interacting with the external environment, everything around you, right? And it's always gathering information. You know, your body's position, it's temperature, pressure, are you hungry, are you thirsty? It's constantly searching for threats, right? And again, if we've been trained that other people are threatening, other people are threatening. And I, how many times you saw on the news that, 
When you see someone that without a mask, does that make you feel threatened? You know, or if you can imagine three years ago, if somebody said, there's a person walking up with a mask, that would probably make you feel threatened. Now it's the norm, you know? Um, but we're kind of flipped our reticular activating system. We're seeing other people as a threat. And this is your body's nervous system. It has to be clogged out of your nervous system. And if it doesn't get processed out, it gets stored. And I think people misunderstand like some kind of trauma must shatter you like glass, like you drop a glass. No, it's, it's a shift in your nervous system and it's a survival response, right? That's all it is, it's a survival response. And, and also too, and there's a disconnect with the psych community and even the NLP community, what happens when things are beyond words? There's no words to describe it. And if you've ever been through a major trauma, well, tell me, I can't describe it. It's indescribable. That's an indescribable, you know, words can't match. And then how do you describe the indescribable? How do you explain the unexplainable? Right, but we think, oh, it's got to be this way. No, it's it's at a different level, right? And so, the stored drama trauma uh, is the emotional roots of pain and tension in your body. It's emotional scars, uh, and it keeps your brain in survival mode, right? Which affects how you search the entire world. And if you've trained your nervous system that alcohol, drugs, sex, food, gambling, whatever the addiction is, especially alcohol and drugs and even food, because it changes the physical state right away, um, is a relief. That's why you keep going back to it, right? Your health suffers when it's constant threat because your body's not made to res respond that way, right? It's like you're a splintered soul, you know? Uh, I've heard it, they, they say it's, Trauma zombifies you. You're like a zombie. You're going through the doesn't mean you can't go through emotions, go to work, take care of this, do that, but it's like you're not there. You're there, but not there. You're there, but not there. Right. And some people will drink or drug or or overeat as a, as that. Other people just stay like they're there but not there. Right. The classic thousand-yard stare we talk about veterans having, but we also see people have it after any kind of traumatic event. Right. So we have to learn to discharge the trauma uh, to restore that you feel safe. Right. And you have to begin to be, learn how to get safe with other people. It's also one of my pet peeves when uh, uh, the anti 12 step movement. Okay, guy went to bar. I'll use a man. He worked a job for 30 years, construction worker. Every night after work, he would go have a beer or a few beers, end up getting drunk. You know, did that for many, many years, start sobering up. He'd go to an AA meeting. So he's getting that connection with other human beings. Oh no, he doesn't need to do that. Okay, what's he gonna do? You know, it's like the people in this lockdown, I love when people post like, yeah, keep the bars closed, keep the gyms closed, keep the restaurants closed, don't open the movie theaters and the theaters keep all this stuff closed. And you start talking to them. They never went to the movies. They never went to the gym. They never, they didn't go to restaurants. That They had no skin in the game. They had other connections. It might be family, could be other things, right? Um, but these body states, it, you know, 
influence everything going on, right? And we have to learn ways to discharge trauma, you know, and to bring you out of survival mode so you can feel comfortable. And the best way is in a herd. You know, if you scare the shit out of a cow, separate from the herd and get it all cranked and put it back by the herd, it doesn't just want to get with it. It gets in the middle of the herd. And then they can wire its brain up and you can see it's, ah, right? And so we have to teach people how to be safe with other people. It's the missing ingredient in addiction treatment, right? Especially for what we do as solo practitioners. I do, I do understand and agree that hypnosis and NLP techniques can, can really help people remove the immediate need to drink or drug right now. But what about long-term, right? What about long-term? So, and, and it's why we have to learn how to discharge this, this trauma, right? And PTSD and self-sabotage go together. And that's what addiction is. It's the ultimate self-sabotage. Guy knows if he gets another DUI, he's going to jail. He gets, he keeps drinking. That's self-sabotage. I mean, intellectually, you go, this doesn't make sense, right? And that could be a trauma response, right? But it's just trying to keep you safe. This person may not know how to relax, except for having a few drinks. And they go out and have a few drinks, and then they get, boom, it goes. Or people that self-sabotage even without alcohol or drugs, right? And you're the clog in your own sabotage. You're, you sabotage your own success. That's what imposter syndrome is. You know, it could be a trauma response, right? Somewhere along the line, maybe when you were a little kid, uh, someone says to you, a parent, authority figure, teacher, coach, who do you think you are? <laughs> You think you're whatever, and then you start feeling like an imposter, right? And addiction, self-sabotage, and it makes you feel better, right? Uh, and depression, anxiety, all go with these things, right? And with epigenetics, what begins to happen, um, if you have all these stresses, maybe it's trauma, and if you're genetically predisposed to an addiction, it's going to take off, right? And so once that addict, once that gene has been activated, that's why going back to my levels model, you can never go back and socially use. It's either all or nothing, right? And so even with the neuroplasticity, it's just you 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 can't. You're allergic to it. End of story, right? Uh, and again, that shouldn't be any big deal, except out external pressures start putting it in, right? And our thoughts can express a gene, you know, to be expressed or inhibited. So it's how we're thinking, right? But the best thing you can do is be different. Have the guts to be different, right? Because to overcome an addiction is a rare thing. When you're going to help your clients that is, is that's what we have to do is help people learn how to do that, is to be a little bit different, to be outside of the norm, right? To be the person that just doesn't drink, right? And when you, if you're going to help people with addiction, one of the first things they do when they sober up, they're afraid, how am I going to let people know I don't drink? 
and they'll come up with it. Oh, I've, I'm on this medication or I'm, you know, rather than just like, I don't drink. What's the big deal? You know, there's whole, you know, if you're a true practicing Muslim, you don't drink. It's, you don't. It's, they don't drink, right? If you're a Mormon, you don't drink coffee, you know? So if you're half Mormon, half Muslim, I don't know what you're going to do. You can't drink, can't have a cup of coffee. Ah, you're Sorry. Uh, so anyway, um, so have some fun, right? And if you want more information, just, you know, get in touch with me at nfnlp.com. Follow me uh, and have fun with this, first and foremost. Because when you help people, one of the other big fears of, of addictions in general is when someone's first sobering up, they, they, they wonder if they can ever have fun again. You know, and so because for maybe 20 years, however long they've been in the addictive mode, starting to have fun usually did not end well. And part of that was the people they were having fun with. They were drinking, they were drugging, they were doing this. So now you're trying to be clean and sober. And that's another thing when I hear people say, well, you don't. And, and if you come from a, a, a family of, a, of addicts or alcoholics, it's, in, it's the way you were raised. Well, how do you learn to have fun? Can you enjoy a gourmet meal? I've heard people after all these years, I, I was somewhere and there was somewhere and there was a meal and the person said, would you like some wine with that? No, I don't drink. Well, how do you enjoy a really good meal? Well, if it's a really good meal, I don't need a drink. I mean, I don't stay, you know, it's like, you know, I, I, but it, you know, it, that's the external pressure coming in. So one of the things we get, and that's one of the things, I'm a big pro 12 stepper, you know, and, and, and a lot of that is because people don't understand the 12 step. I could do a whole, talk on the how the 12 step act the 12 step program actually works um, but it, it's a place to feel safe and secure where you're not alone you know um, it was the first place I ever went where I saw grown men talk about their feelings All right I mean that's not normal but I come from a real blue collar background and in the army or the first job outside before I went away to be an actor was in the steel mill you're not talking about your hopes, dreams, and fears when you're when you're at lunch at the steel mill. You're talking about baseball, football, booze, or broads. That's it. That's all the subject we are going to allow at this table, right? And then you go. So there's that, and also how to have fun again. A lot of people that don't understand the twelve steps is what they don't understand is a lot of times around the twelve steps, there's people that are going golfing and playing fishing and hunting and there's dances there's picnics there's parties that drinking is not going to be there so people can venture out and learn how to have fun learn that they can go to a picnic or a party a fourth of july a dance and not drink right and i'll close with this my lovely wife we've been together forever uh i was sober a few years when i met her she doesn't have a drinking problem uh, but it was coming up on New Year's Eve. I said, hey, you want to go to a New Year's Eve dance? She goes, yeah, let's go to a dance. I said, well, it's at, at, the, at this AA club. And she'd never been there. And she's like, well, 
what do you do at midnight? I said, we dance, we, we, so we celebrate, we toast. Well, what do you toast with? It was just an alien concept that you weren't having a, ship of, a sip of champagne or, or a few drinks, you know? Um, but then for many, many years, we were probably at an AA dance once a month because I'm a social guy. I like social activities, right? And lastly, I will shut up with the other thing about the 12 steps. One question you can ask if you're gonna work with people, whether they should go to a 12-step program or not, or 12-step meeting, go into that. If they were bar drinkers, the 12-step works very well right out of the gate because you've taken away their social thing, whether going to the bar, hanging out, going to the country club, that's gone, right? So what are they gonna replace it with, right? So they can learn you know, that at, at, at a 12-step meeting. And the only ones that kind of have to really work to stay in are the people that hid their drinking or their drugging, right? The, the closet drinkers have a little, little bit more issue with it. Well, that's just something to think about. If you have any questions, um, get in touch.